0: Uh, we're in the middle of our series. Well, we're still kind of at the beginning. We've been doing it for a while, but we're still kind of at the beginning. We're only on number two out of five. Now, I'm I'm not anticipating that each one will take as long as the first one. But we'll see how that goes. <laughs> and... uh our uh, subtitle is Schemes of the Devil in the Modern World. And so what we're talking about is uh, maybe if the devil's involved, it's uh, in a sort of behind-the-scenes way. But the Bible describes the devil as the father of lies. So there's no such thing a lot as a lie that, doesn't ha- that he doesn't have a hand in in one way or another at some point or another. Uh, but today, uh, we're looking at lie number two, which is very popular these days. And this, this lie, we might sometimes identify as post-modernism. Uh, though that term seems to have lost popularity recently, but whatever. Um, and the lie goes like this, your guess is as good as mine. And in some situations, of course, that's a perfectly correct thing to say. (laughs) Your guess might be just as good as mine. And we are guessing a lot. And that's kind of the beginning of the logic of this lie is we are doing quite a bit of guessing as we navigate this world we live in. It's unavoidable. But, we might dispute the idea that all guesses are equal. But, anyway, let's uh, begin at the beginning. This slide goes like this. All perception is incomplete. Therefore, nothing is really known. All our knowledge is uh, partial. And Uh, The first part of that statement is true, but the conclusion is not logical. To say that none of us have a complete perception of things doesn't mean that none of us have any perception of things or that some of our perceptions might be correct or incorrect. But that's kind of the logic of this lie. All perception is incomplete, therefore nothing is really known, therefore truth is subjective. And what we mean by subjective is meaning resides in the observer. Like the old saying, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Well, I think we could argue that beauty is somewhat in the eye of the beholder, but some things are objectively beautiful. And some things are objectively true, though, even if my perception of those things is partial or faulty. Hmm. So, but this slide says truth is subjective as a sort of matter of definition. And that means leads us to this conclusion. Each of us has his or her own truth, which is valid for him or her. Again, there are things that are true that are just for me. And there are other things that are true that are just for you. So there is this idea that I could call some things my truth. Well, that's not a utterly uh, empty category, but it doesn't account for everything. Uh, And the lie here is that it does. So we have statements like this, that might be true for you, but not for me. Or a woman is a person who identifies himself as a woman. What that is, is a statement that says what matters is what the person himself believes. And that is completely disconnected from the objective reality around that person. So I wanted to give you some idea where all this comes from, uh, and it it's it's older than we think. It goes back to a uh, school of literary criticism, basically, uh, and so this notion that is uh, has the label radical hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is the term for interpretation. How do we interpret or understand the meaning of things? And that is especially important in the practice of literature, literary criticism. And so this logic uh, has been uh, most stringently applied in the school of literary criticism criticism. <clears throat> called deconstructionism. You've you probably heard that term, deconstruction. We're deconstructing everything. Most of us don't know the origin of that idea of deconstructing things, but that's the origin of it. It comes from this school of literary criticism. And this, uh, this way of thinking says it's impossible to determine the meaning that the author intended. So Shakespeare wrote plays and various other things. And the question is, when we read Shakespeare, can we tell what he meant? Or if you read uh, any work of literature, a novel, I don't know what your favorite novel is. Do you, do you have access to the intention of the author? This is, of course, a, a serious question in biblical uh, scholarship. Can we tell when we read the book of Romans what Paul meant to say? This is also important in the legal community. It is like the number one argument among legal scholars, uh, it goes by this name, originalism. So you have, you know, Justice Scalia, who's a famous originalist, who says, what matters is what they meant when they wrote it. And the question is, well, can we tell what that is? Do we know when the founders wrote the United States Constitution? Do we know what they meant? And can we tell what they meant by reading what they wrote? That's the question. And that's the question. That's a broad question. It goes all over the place. And it, uh, broadly, uh, it came through into the philosophical world through this channel of literary criticism in deconstruction. Uh, so, <clears throat> deconstructionism says it's impossible to determine the meaning an author intended. Therefore, the reader can only use literature as a point of reflection upon himself. In other words, what matters is what it means to me. When I'm reading uh, The Three Musketeers or whatever I'm reading, what matters is what do I get out of it? What, what, what does it mean to me? Because uh, I, I certainly can't tell what Dumas was, talking, was trying to communicate he wrote it. Uh, and what that means, what we end up with here is a divorce between what does it mean to me? And what did he mean when he wrote it? What did he mean when he wrote it is completely separate from what does it mean to me? So truth becomes, or meaning becomes subjective. So not only beauty, but everything is in the eye of the beholder. Even the definitions of words and the meanings of simple sentences are in the understanding of the reader or the hearer and not in the intention of the communicator. So here's the logic. I've got five steps here. You can uh, see if you can spot where it goes wrong. Step number one is perception is incomplete. None of us is seeing, hearing, learning, observing everything. My perception is incomplete. When I read something, my understanding of what I'm reading is incomplete. And so is yours. If we read the same thing, you ever been a Bible in a Bible study where people were always talking about what it meant to them? That's what we're talking about. What this means to me, and then you have an argument because what this means to me is different from what this means to me. Um, perception is incomplete. And so pers- that's number two. Perception varies from person to person. Your understanding is not the same as mine. So the way two people know the same object will be different. I don't know if you've ever heard the illustration of uh, two blind guys in an elephant. Trying to tell you what this is one of them has a hold of the elephant's trunk and one of them is bumping into the side of the elephant and then they're arguing about what that what it is they're dealing with their perception is incomplete and different so our concepts of truth will become will be different because we have different perspectives i'm I'm looking at this coffee cup on the table, and as far as I'm concerned, that cup does not have any handle. There's no handle on that cup. Now I'm pretty sure Mark is looking at it from a different angle, and if he were describing the cup, he would not leave out the handle. So, uh, here we have two different perspectives, and those two perspectives are not the same. This leads to step number three your guess is as good as mine. So, no one can say my view is better than yours, no one can say my view is more truthful. Or more aligned with reality, because none of us has a full view of reality. How do I know? Now, I'm pretty sure this is the spot where the logic goes a little haywire. Because I can look at the cup and say, there's no handle on that cup. And Mark can look at that cup and say, there's a handle on that cup. And one of those views is a better guess than the other. Because there's an actual cup, but this is the, this is the logic. And when it comes to things like, what does somebody mean when they communicate or when they write or speak, then this is more tricky. I mean, when we're looking at a cup, the objective reality is hard to deny. But when we're talking about what did Thomas Jefferson mean when he wrote the Declaration of Independence, that's a little trickier. But uh, this next step in this logic is because your guess is as good as mine and none of us has a full view of the whole thing. This is basically an argument from pluralism. There are multiple views, and it's difficult to judge between the various views. So, perception is reality. You probably heard that expression. Perception is reality. What matters, what really matters, is what people believe. Is the meaning that we assign to this or that. This uh, this concept is wrapped up in the whole philosophy of existentialism where we assign meaning because in the existential philosophy, there is no actual meaning. So, that if anything has any meaning, it's because we give it meaning. And what we're doing in the case of this sort of radical hermeneutics model is we're driving that down into the individualistic uh, realm. Uh, So this comes to the last step here. Objective reality is practically non-existent. That word practically is important. Because I'm not aware of anyone who would argue that Objective reality is actually non-existent, though there probably are some, but they might say, well, it might exist, but we don't have any access to it. So as a practical matter, it doesn't exist. So meaning is entirely subjective in this argument. And this morphs then into uh, what might even be a more important implication, which is this idea. All metanarratives are power grabs. Now, I think you're shaking your head like, why did you say metanarratives? So I'll tell you what I, what I mean. All concepts of a world view are nothing but political. In other words, if I have some kind of grand explanation for everything, I'm just, that's just a power grab on my part. I'm just imposing that on you. And in this way, This strange way of thinking that subjectifies all truth ends up uh, in the land of manipulating others. Uh, it, It just says, well, in the end, you know, if I'm a free market capitalist, I'm just trying to rule the world in a particular way. Or, on the other hand, if I'm a, a communist, thank you. How could I forget that word? If I'm a communist, I'm, I'm asserting certain things to be true. I'm, I'm elaborating a grand scheme, and all I'm really trying to do is take charge. That all, this, all we're doing in the end is talking about who's in charge, who has the power. Uh, And to me, that's a very interesting turn for this whole logic to take. Um, But that's, that's basically the logic of a lot of things you are hearing in the world today. That my view is as good as anyone else's. Well, is it, or is it possible, to have a more truthful view and a less truthful view? How disconnected from reality are we? So, what we want to do is take our system for uh, evaluating a view, (laughs) And apply it to this. Now, this is the worldview that denies the existence of worldviews. So it's it it has this sort of uh, if you push it here, it just squeezes out over there kind of quality to it. Uh, and it's it is a sort of the way of thinking in a lot of academia these days. Uh, but uh so it's it's not stupid people who think this way just to be clear but we might want to ask the question if well if this way of thinking seems ridiculous to you you might want to ask the question why do smart people think this way then <clears throat> well so let's uh, apply our critical concept the first we have three c's is it comprehensive and then on the back of your sheet is it consistent and then is it competent the first c is about well is it leaving out stuff are there certain things that this fails to consider that ought to have been considered the, then the idea of consistency is is it in, is it internally logical in other words Is it coherent? Uh, Does it avoid contradicting itself? And this one's really horrible on that scale. But then the last one is, is it competent? In other words, could you live by this? Could you develop any kind of practical ethics uh, from this point of view? And if so, what would that look like? How you know how would you go? What are the problems, the, the competence issues with this view? So starting with comprehensive, the first thing we're going to notice about this is that it's individualistic and empirical in the extreme. Now, empirical is kind of a philosophical term in this case, but what this what this ends up with is, my truth is mine. And whatever I perceive the truth to be is true for me.
1: Because of the experiences that I have.
0: Well, because of whatever I say it should be because of. Yeah, uh, the idea, what the problem here is, is this is really alienating. So uh, this separates us. And one of the places where I think you can see this separation is in the whole world of identity politics. Where what matters is this group has this identity. Why? Why? Well, sometimes, because of some objective thing about this group, it's sometimes because of their own self identity. And then this group has a different identity and all we're doing is competing for who's going to make the rules. Um, and what this does, and then you have this whole system of intersectionalism where, you know, if I'm in these two, if I'm in the little overlapping Venn diagram of these two groups, and I'm in a really special group, and then there's another overlap, and I'm in a really, well, if you keep doing this, who who do you end up with? Just you. Uh, it's, it's, it's a way of separation and isolation in the end. And if we think about the Philosophical origin of it. If I, if the meaning of everything for me is mine to determine, I end up alone. I've sort of predetermined that I will end up alone. Uh, So it's, it's really radically individualistic. And it's empirical in the sense of, like you were saying, Francisco, it's based on my experience my engagement with the world around me whatever that means now it's it's actually kind of hard to figure out what what is my engagement with the world how do i because my perception of the world is only a perception i'm living in the matrix and so i'm not actually engaging with anything i could really call the real world okay well then I am up to me, and I am up to only me. And yet, this somehow morphs into us telling each other what to do and how to see things. It's going to have consistency issues, too. That reminds me of this. I'm sorry. Oh. Well and that yeah that that was uh yeah, that sort of precedes this, but yeah, it's aimed in the same direction and turned but that was much more uh nihilistic, so I'm going to be the super man in Nietzschean sort of way, but if i and i I can't really say much about it because I don't know that very well, but um the second thing about this well the first first thing i I just want to say this, all I have is what I perceive and what I make of it well, that's a problem. it's a real problem. What is it I'm perceiving
2: uh-huh.
1: Correct. Yeah. <laughs> right.
3: I'll that. Uh-huh. But if all accepting
0: mine. Correct.
3: Uh-huh.
2: right
0: i'm good with all of that the, there's uh i I've, I've, i regard perception as uh how i take in the reality around me now My problem here is if we're going to talk about perception in this model, it's actually kind of hard to talk about uh, because what what is it I'm interacting with? And uh, so perception gets internalized in a certain strange way. And so then... What's, what's the reality I'm perceiving gets, gets separated from my perception of it in some way. So it gets really odd and kind of we end up having trouble keeping track of what we mean when we say perception. Sorry? Sure. Of course. Correct. We do. that's right you you certainly do and you're you're relying on the soundness of the chair you're sitting in yeah sure well or to rule them yeah yeah so I, we need to keep moving here guys but uh so what, what, I, what I'm noticing here in this idea of comprehensive, comprehensiveness is this sort of isolation of the person. Uh, so what I make of things is mine to make. And so we, this kind of leads to item number two. This ends up leaving out everything. If we're if the question of comprehensiveness is a question of does it leave anything out there's a very real way in which this line of thinking leaves everything out it's it's like uh, uh, Descartes saying I think therefore I am the only thing <laughs> I think therefore I am and So everything I see is what I imagine. Uh, Okay. That's the logic here. Uh, It denies the very notion of a comprehensive explanation. Now, we might want to notice that our comprehensive explanations aren't entirely comprehensive. Right? Even our... Biblical worldview, as we hold it, is not including everything, except that it includes the category of God that includes everything, but we're not uh, up to speed on all of that. But here, (laughs) this is saying there's no such thing as a comprehensive explanation of things. And this leads us to the third thing here, which is it must leave out God. It denies or the, or ignores the possibility of a self-disclosing omniscience. Now, what we say about God in the Christian faith is that God is omniscient. And what we mean when we say that is God knows everything. God knows everything that is. Everything that was, everything that could have been or might be his knowledge is uh, complete. He knows everything and all contingents. In other words, if there were such a thing as parallel universe, God. Sees them all. That would be an infinite number of things, I think. So we're dealing with the being over our heads. But this uh, way of thinking denies the possibility of comprehensive. Knowledge or the possibility of a self disclosing omniscience. Now, the other part of that sentence about God is it's not just omniscient, but that God is self-disclosing. In other words, God speaks. Uh, So if there's a being that knows everything. And he announces things. That might be a way of knowing things he announces his own nature, or if he engages with his creation in certain ways where he's personally involved, then there might be some access in that to reality. Now, of course, I don't think we got to have that to say, to make the claim that there's access to reality, but we'll talk about that. The second question is Is it consistent? In other words, does it avoid self contradiction? Or is it internally coherent? And the answer to this question is hmm, really not. <clears throat> it's an example of the thing it denies. To say that truth or meaning is entirely subjective is to make an objective truth claim. And that's the simple logic here. And in a certain odd way, this objection to metanarratives is a Marinette metanarrative. It's saying something that's true about all of us and all our perceptions. And Well, we'll come to what I I was about to jump ahead. But the second item here is truth that is only belief is an empty set. The the word truth just doesn't have any meaning anymore under this arrangement. Um, And, you know, nobody actually believes that. that there's no objective reality or no access or no access to it, or such limited access that we can't make any actual truth claims. And if it were true, then we also can't make the actual truth claim that that's true. I believe that we believe this for moral convenience, and we'll have more to say about this uh the i believe the whole idea of my truth and your truth is comes down to i want to determine my own uh moral set of course even that has some kind of hard limits because The rest of us are going to get involved if you determine that in any in some particular ways, like if you just determine that maybe you're some kind of sociopath. Well, what's the problem with being a sociopath under this system? So if you determine you enjoy killing people and you go around killing people, the rest of us are going to get involved. Now, that's a kind of ridiculous extreme statement, but, uh, where do we find the boundary here? Um, so truth that is only belief ends up empty. I lose the category. I lose any meaningful category with the label truth on it. Because there's yours and mine are not the same and never the two shall meet. The third item here, (laughs) I say, if you really believe this, why are you talking? (laughs) If the literary critics are right to say there's no access to the intended meaning of the author, Why are they writing books if they aren't intending for us to gain whatever it is they mean to say? Are they just writing books so that I can independently make whatever I make of them? Uh, If they don't actually mean something, what's the point? Your books don't mean what you mean to say in them. Why are you writing them? If what you say is true, then you are trying to convince. Me, then you trying to convince me of it is an example of the the oppression you're saying you're against. If. Uh, if identity politics is a good idea, then what we should all do is get into our groups and fight it out. Well, we'd end up having just a melee of individuals. Because sooner or later, I'm going to find something to fight with you about. Uh, if you really believe this. There's no need to say it. And in fact, there's not only no need, there's no point. It is of no benefit to anyone for us to declare that there's no actual meaning in what people say. Here's the thing I think about communication is we have a significant capacity to communicate. It's some sort of miracle, frankly, that I can take whatever idea is inside my head, I can put it into language, speak or write that language in such a way that you can pretty well understand almost exactly what I had in my head. And if I'm really good at it, You can really clearly understand what I'm trying to say. And you, we can read the text of scripture and understand the historical context of the scripture and get a really good idea of exactly what Paul meant to say when he wrote that. It turns out it's not even that hard. Even with the great leap of historical distance and culture. And by the way, we're also translating it into another language. So for me, the basic literary claim here is really faulty. Like when so-and-so writes a novel, he he can and does actually really rely on our capacity to understand what he's saying and what he means. And when the founders of whatever nation wrote that nation's constitution, why? Because they believe that writing this down will actually communicate what they mean to the people that this document will govern. So. For me, this this. uh, Sort of popular postmodern idea. Uh, kind of collapses in this area of cons- consistency. Is it, it's, it's self-contradictory. It is the truth claim that there are no truth claims. <laughs> uh-huh. Okay, well, I feel pretty safe not paying any attention to you now after you say that. because you've given me permission. You say there are no truth claims. Well, then I don't have to listen to anything you tell me. Uh, So it has real problems with consistency. The The last C on our list is, is it competent? That means, does it generate meaningful ethics? I My own empirical estimation of the fruit of this line of thinking is it creates ethics according to the preference of the, per- the people who hold it. <laughs> and it could just as easily create the ethics of their opposition. Because basically The ethics of this whole system of thinking boil down to competitive identity. And so we're just in a fight for who's going to rule. It politicizes everything. And if, if you've observed how everything is being politicized, what we're talking about here is where that comes from. So does it generate meaningful ethics? Does it fully recognize human agency? Could we live by this? Well, my number one item on this list is nobody lives this way. As as was pointed out, we are all constantly depending on the existence of knowable objective reality. There's no other way you could proceed. And the second thing is nobody talks or writes this way. If if you talk or write, you are not doing it this way. If you write a book, you write a book because you hope people will understand what you're saying and agree with you. or Or Follow your thinking in one way or another. If you're writing a piece of fiction, you want people to understand the story. You construct the plot and you rely on the fact that they're going to read it and get it. You don't write as though they're going to make of it whatever they want. Now, when I say that, that doesn't mean everyone's going to get it the same way. There's plenty of discussions about the meaning of Shakespeare. There's plenty of discussions about the specific meaning of the text of the Bible. There's lots of aggr- a disagreement and discussion and ch- changing perspectives and arguments between perspectives on all of that. But all of those arguments about differing perspectives are pointless if all I can have is my own perspective. And the the point of the whole argument is that we might all more closely approximate the actual meaning. When we proceed in science, we <laughs> we run experiment we you can't do science if you think this way because the very first thing in science is there is something there for us to test and so we proceed to test it and i have my hypothesis and you have yours and we're in competition and your hypothesis is you know a millimeter different from mine and this is a fight to the death. But why are we fighting over it? Because we all believe that that fight will produce a closer, better hypothesis. And the way we judge the quality of that hypothesis is by how well, how true it is, how well it reflects the actual world that we're living in. Well, this Logic applies everywhere, including even the understanding of literary works. Nobody writes a book. You can't write a book holding to this line of thinking. You've got to set this aside long enough. Even when you're writing a book that asserts this line of thinking, there's something you're asserting. And what you want is for everyone else To understand what you're asserting and not just make up their own idea of it. So when I communicate, I mean something. And I mean for you to understand what I mean. The third thing here, which I think might be the most important. Which I've already sort of mentioned. Is that subjective meaning results in ethical relativism. Sort of. So if the meaning of things is a, is an entirely subjective matter then morality is too. And so what's right for me and what's right for you can be different, can even conflict. And there's no sound basis for judging between between them. And so we end up in this sort of ethical relativism. I think this might be the point. In fact, in certain schools, I'm sure this is the point, because one of the things that's happened in the last 10, 15 years, maybe, is that this way of thinking has been sort of joined together with Marxist ways of thinking. Because what we need is a way to rebel against uh, whatever we're rebelling against, that the capitalists or whatever, the Western, I don't know. What we're rebelling against depends on who we're talking to. But this uh, postmodern way of thinking has, has been in many ways sort of conjoined with Marxist scholarship even though that ought not to work because Marxism begins as a comprehensive explanation of things. So in any case, I think the point of this in the, in the current context is the point of something you could call identity politics. It's, it's ethical relativism to a point. As it's ethical relativism, as long as my ethics rule. And so you end up with a sort of racist anti racism. You know, uh, and you end up with various proposals to ignore objective realities with a rule attached, with a rule that says you have to ignore this objective reality. So when I say it, it, it's ethical relativism, well, sort of, it ends up being kind of a way to justify whatever ethics I'd like to impose on people. And in my mind, this is also a serious consistency problem. In other words, I could, from this point of view, decide these are the rules that apply. And in this way of thinking, you can't tell me I'm wrong. Well, the question is, are there certain things that are right and certain things that are wrong? Is there a moral, is there an objective morality? Well, yeah. <laughs> now, next time we're going to talk about, uh, how, a, how a biblical mindset might address all these things. Our, our last step is the step we call exalting the truth. What we've done so far is sort of present a particular way of thinking and apply this critical analysis to it. But we haven't said anything much about, well, what does the scripture say? And how does that relate to this? That'll be next time, because I figured out we have a limited amount of time for these conversations. So uh, I'm going to stop there. And if there's anything you want to ask, discuss, whatever. Sorry, what Like, when did this start? Yeah, it was the first person, first.
3: What what age did the person be interested supply chain? you? Like, There's some really old
2: guys. Yeah. And now, I think
0: the contemporary liberal arts. University
1: is is a school of indoctrination to in this way.
3: Oh,
1: no, absolutely. not. Okay, that's my opinion. I would agree. With that's that. only my opinion.
3: I would agree with that from my experience. That's fine. Okay. From from your perspective, I. That's
0: that's that's so my that opinion. That
3: maybe it's faulty. I'd be, I'd be glad to know it's not true, but. I think, uh, I,
0: but I I think it's, this is not an uncommon way to think, but I think people think this way when there's some advantage to thinking this way. But I
3: don't have to follow through and figure out what it's true. There's only one thing. I right, there's only one thing. And everybody has a, a, a point of view, of view especially it, with the car. Right. You, know, you saw the couple one way, somebody sees the color another way. And there's real issues trying to pull all those ways together. I study history, and one of the things you learn when you study history is you don't never know what history was. Because everybody saw it from a different angle. When they wrote about it, recorded it, they. <coughs> they're, well, they're, I, I don't, I don't mind, mind saying it like
0: this <laughs> we don't ever know. Fully, what history was. But you
3: can learn a lot about when you pull so, all those historians together. The fact that we don't, all do the fact do the
0: fact that they don't all agree and none of them have a full perspective, it doesn't mean there isn't anything to know. It isn't that they don't all agree;
3: it's that they, they see don't it. all agree. They see it differently. Correct. So, so when they pull their views together, they get a greater <laughs> of the truth. Sure. Maybe not the final picture.
0: So, so it's not, it's not because, so it's not correct because so all we're saying here is the fact that they don't all see it exactly the same doesn't mean that there isn't a thing available necessary. to be seen. That's right. There is a thing available to be seen, and we we have historical information
1: even though it's incomplete, of course. It's historical information that makes it even more incomplete. You also have some yeah, so that, that
0: I'm not I'm not trying to assert that that there's no valid scholarship. That's crazy. Of course, there is.
3: Only in the conservative schools. Sorry. Only in the conservative schools. No, what I'm saying
0: is that in 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 university education, this idea is very common and. Students are being indoctrinated in this way of thinking.
3: also being indoctrinated by other schools that sure. Of course.
0: And I'm not talking about any particular school. That was a general statement. Yeah, in general, true. I think that's true. But, and I might be wrong. I, know, I could, this is a, this is an observation from a distance. For sure. But that's what it looks like to me. This way of thinking comes from academia comes from literary criticism in the beginning, but it has spread significantly, and it's a very common way of thinking among university students. So, anyway, you can draw your own conclusion.
1: That's one thing I, I like about uh, the true pursuit
3: of, of engineering, uh, and <laughs> some of us are engineers, and you'll, you'll get this, there'll be several points of view and theories about how something should work. And in the end, to, to Doug's point earlier about a millimeter here, millimeter there,
1: you put it on the dynamometer and you test it. And so if, if at one place I told Doug that the guy that was in charge of the testing group had this big sign over his, over the door. If you went out to test your product, one test is worth a
0: thousand expert opinions. And when you put the thing on the dynamometer and you put the power to it and it blows up, Something was wrong with the thinking
3: inside there, or the there's a way to correct it. You got to go find it.
0: Has anyone designed a test for the expert opinion that one test is worth a thousand expert opinions? But but a
3: lot of expert opinions are. I'm looking at a lot of these tests. Of course. That and yeah. the theory behind it that gets proven out. For example, you don't pour water into your oil crankcase. You may think water will work and somebody may have an expert. But, but you pour water into the crankcase and the engine's not going to like it. I, right. think the, I think what's important though, Doug pointed out the numerous fallacies of all crankcase, yeah. basic logic, premise,
1: over and over whoever's whoever this is very unwise. You know, that's the
0: well, it does come from the, uh, a real basis, which is a is the basis you could you could use the label pluralism, for. and that is the beginning point is there
1: are multiple points of view about anything. And what
0: we're trying to work out is, can we judge between them? Well, to judge between them does require you to sort of
1: take a position above them. And then you're in a position where you have to
0: say, well, this one's truer than that. So the question is, is that possible? Is that available to our minds as people?
1: Can we judge between them? in, my, in, in certain cases, like you know, we're
0: talking about we're going to engineer an engine, well, that gets down to our reality very quickly. In certain other instances, say we're going to try to figure out the history of things, it's a little less directly accessible, right? And so th- this is a real problem. It's not.
1: When, when we start at the top of this
0: logical, these logical steps we're not saying anything I would disagree with perception is incomplete that there's no question, nobody has a complete perspective well, God but we're not in uh, and perception does vary between people In any discipline of study, there are schools of thought.
1: Some of them violently disagree with each other. Okay, that's just true.
0: We we read, over here, we read this book and we say this. This is what, this is the meaning of this text. And over here we read this text and we say, no,
3: you have completely missed it.
1: This is the meaning of this text. And in this rule, we say, yeah, the meaning of this text isn't the important thing. The, mean, the, the important thing is what, how, do, how do we respond to it? Well, this turns then into kind of a crazy direction. Where, and then this line of thinking It's broadly applied in all kinds of areas of
0: uh, thought, not just literary criticism. Uh, So we end up in this perception of reality land,
1: uh, and then, now here, this gets to my opinion Mm land, then we find that useful. find it useful because that allows me to assert things on no basis. Uh, So, you know, then
0: when I say, you know, well, you don't have any more access to objective reality than I do, so my claim of this or that identity is not deniable by you
1: that claim of this or that identity I I don't allow I I just end up asserting whatever ethical standard I care for under this system so I'm, I'm allowed to
0: say this because that's how I identify but you're not allowed to identify that one no that would be
1: evil How gonna? There's no
0: standard by which this can be sorted because we've disconnected the whole conversation from any grounding
1: in any rea- objective reality. Now,
0: from I think from a good personal point of view, our system of how do we justify this or that claim of truth has to be complex. What I mean is,
1: it, it
0: relies on the existence of truth and acknowledges our
1: partial and faulty perception of that reality. It, it, you have to have, there's no knowing without a person knowing. And whoever that person
0: is, their knowing is incomplete and faulty. It always is. And
1: So we have to,
0: we're going to proceed to claim we know things. We need to acknowledge that reality. That's the beginning point of this argument.
1: The problem with this argument is not where it starts, but where it ends. We, we would have to be what I think, in philosophical terms, we
0: would call critical realists. In other words, we know there's truth to be known, and we know that we're the ones
1: doing the knowing. So that means I should probably pay attention to your perceptions. We should
0: engage in this argument that you're
1: talking about where
0: I listen to yours and you listen to mine and maybe we fight a little bit over it. And and out of that, maybe we all move a little forward in the accuracy or the truthfulness of our comprehension. That's a critical realism. That's saying there's a thing to be known, but knowing it is not easy. And knowing it depends on how I'm looking at it. And how I look at it isn't the same way some Japanese guy would look at it. Or some uh, person who studied uh, Russian literature is going to look at it. There's going to be a variation in our looking at it. And so hmm, what this ends up saying is, therefore, nobody's opinion
1: is any better than anyone else's opinion. What we really want
0: to do is say, well, let's see if we can add up the opinions and come up with something closer to the reality. So we don't want to, we don't want to go so hard against this way of thinking that we say all knowledge is solid objective knowledge. That's
1: ridiculous. It isn't. We partially know everything we know. But that doesn't
0: mean we don't know anything. (laughs) And that's the problem with this logic, is you end up knowing nothing. You end up saying knowledge is not, knowledge is sort of a figment of your imagination.
1: What we want to say is, well, no. There's, the, this, this table
0: is here and it's holding up this cup. And when I put the cup down on it, I was relying on all that because I know it to be true. And it's an objective reality sorry
3: that's a test yeah. <laughs> that's a test yeah. well yeah although it's not, it's
0: not limited to science that's, that's kind of the point point. Of, one of the things I'm, we might, where we might go with this whole course is to think more carefully about what are we doing when we go about knowing and one of the most useful things I've ever learned in this whole area is knowing is an activity, not a data set. In other words, when I go
1: to know things,
0: I'm I'm engaged in a certain type of activity when I know something. And we might want to think about what do we do to know things. What do scientists actually do? And if we think about what they're really
1: doing, could we, could we
0: apply that same sort of process or idea in the other things we say we know? So for example, I know Frank.
1: What do I mean when I say I know Frank? Well, here's something. At least right this minute, I have no idea what Frankie's birthday is. I couldn't even tell you how old he is exactly. Though he's obviously much older than me. <laughs> Wait a
3: minute. <laughs> oh. Actually,
0: that's not obvious at all. But uh, That's oh, my I'm perspective. Sure. But anyway, uh, I, when I say I know Frankie, I don't mean that I know a list of facts about Frankie. Though I could name some facts about Frankie.
1: Can I have a thought
3: on knowing something? Bible,
1: yeah. I would want to interject Was she here yeah. is. She would point out the process of knowing something. The Bible uses "know" as you know, mm-hmm. um, in a common sense when you know your life. My wife would point out that that has nothing to do with cognitive knowledge of but the process. You married 35 years last month. And, uh, it's in the process of getting to know. Uh, maybe there's an application
0: there in terms of how you build knowledge. Trust vision. Right. Trust them. Well, yes. and, uh, if I, if I were to describe to you, uh, the theory of knowledge that I hold to, I would say that that
1: concept of knowing, that concept of personal engagement with a thing, is what scientists are doing when they do science. That it's that it's always uh, that. It's always, always incomplete.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Well that's right. That's right. So what we're doing when we go about understanding the real world around us is we're sort of penetrating reality in a certain sense. And uh The guy, Michael Polanyi, wrote this book, it's called Personal
1: Knowledge, Uh, and he was a physical chemist, a scientist. He said, he was listening to what people said about what scientists do, and he said, that's not what we do. So he figured out this out.
0: Anyway, and what he's saying, what he would, he would use the word indwelling, which is, uh, a relative of this idea of intimate knowing. Uh, So he would would say, well, let's think
3: about, uh, Frankie's
0: a musician. Frankie plays an instrument. Here's what Frankie doesn't do when he plays his instrument. Think about exactly how many pounds of pressure
1: he's gonna apply to that string on that instrument. Frankie plays the music. Not the instrument Well, how do you do that? You didn't do that the first time I picked that thing up. I'm not sure. Someone's playing the piano.
0: Somebody's a real musician playing the piano. They're not
3: paying, they're not watching their
0: fingers
1: or the music or the music. They're playing the music more than the piano. The way Polanyi would describe this is they've
0: indwelt the piano. In other words, the piano has become something like an extension of them. If you, if you think about a surgeon, highly skilled
1: user of his hands,
0: <laughs> and if you ask the question, at what point is the surgeon in contact with the with what he's doing.
1: Is it where the scalpel meets his hand? Or is it where the scalpel meets the patient? It's the patient. The scalpel has become a tool, an extension of himself. In this way,
0: he knows scalpels. He, is, he knows, he has... He's engaged in, in the world in a very specific, concrete way. And as we learn and grow and know, we become, we, we take up
1: space in the world. We, we now are at the point where now I, from here I can see things that I couldn't see when I was over there.
0: And so we're pushing the border back, if you will. Anyway, this, the whole concept of knowledge as a personally, a personal engagement is, I think, an extremely
1: helpful idea in this, in, in all of these discussions about, well, what are we doing when we go about Engaging the world around us. How do we know this or that is true? How do we judge between this or that true claim? Tests help us a lot. But how do we decide what makes a good test?
3: Well, we gotta guess and see
0: if that works. We gotta test our testing mechanisms. And we gotta, we, well, all we're doing is sort of pushing back the border. So,
1: some people when they're engaged in mechanical engineering see stuff
0: I I mean I'm just talking about Rick's specialty here because Rick's sitting here Rick can look at this drawing that he showed me
1: well Rick really sees it I don't Really see it at all because it's the first time I've ever looked at one of these. I have no. Under- I wonder. You could wonder why do you draw it from that animal instead of this one? Because you could draw any number of animals, but you pick this one. And
0: you know, there's what we're doing when we go about knowing is we're doing something. It's not just about the stack
1: of information that's contained on our hard drive. It's what do we do when we go into contact
0: with the people around us, with the world around us, with the things around us, with the ideas around us, all of those things.
1: You know, one thing, Elsa, uh, I think me really. Uh, to the depth in this and it's worthy to take the time to think about just our, our predicament if you, if you would in not knowing this that it, it is about a little bit about and you and I don't, don't know something or maybe you, you know something that I don't and if, if you are uh, imposing anything our form more than and, Lord, and kind of being in a, in a sense uh, of valuing you know
3: who I am. Our discussion and our convention uh, it
1: becomes really uh consciously unlimited. Are you qualified at all? Welcome. I think yeah but I still think
3: mean, we could both agree to be
1: loving and kind. Of Nature. Right. Yes. I said it. Yeah. yeah. Care and respectful, and say, "Well, you know what you know, and I don't know what I know." Kind of a discussion, but right. Right. so it does, I don't want to say that there isn't a truth to that. There is. No truth, is, not it is but right. It's almost like it's out here in my might correct. So we don't have to be mean to each other, <laughs> or or over and over Or just give up on the whole project, which is kind of what this does. It
0: just says, well, that's all. Except, it does and it doesn't. You know? So it's not really honest from my point of view. But, yeah, we're, we, one thing about the idea of a critical realist approach to understanding the world is, uh,
1: it requires a bit of humility. It requires listening to those who have a different perspective, or even an opposing perspective. Uh, it involves the having
0: the actual argument. You know, so you say your point of view, and I say I try to dismantle that and assert mine, and then we go back and forth. And in the process of that, we all come to some. Or maybe you and I don't, but everyone standing around watching us comes to a better <laughs> understanding of uh, of the whole situation. Uh, but the, all of that depends on us, on the beginning assumption that objective reality is available to us,
1: and available to be understood by us. Not, uh, if, if that's not the case, then science is pointless. I think we've demonstrated that science is not one us. By practicing it for a while and seeing the amazing fruit it produces. So, we? <laughs> My question is, we, we have this in the Christianity too. different opinions. I'm sorry? In Christianity, we, we do have different opinions like science, right? <laughs> religion will certain religions will give right. an explanation over of certain... Where is uh not the That's, right. gamble, you know? that's
0: yeah. for that's for next that's time. That's right. And that's what we time. want to acknowledge is what we should be engaged in is some sort of conversation around the thing. Just exactly like Mark was describing. And
1: that can get heated and okay, you know. It doesn't need to get mean
0: and it doesn't need to become politicized, in fact, politicizing it will ruin it, I think. If, if, if this theological discussion about what is the meaning and importance of some text of scripture to our theological understanding of the
1: universe, if that becomes a discussion of who rules...
0: then it's no longer a discussion of the meaning of the text. It can't be both.
1: It can't, if if what determines our theology
0: is who's in charge, then we're not having the the honest discussion. And if we adopt a worldview that boils down to who's in
1: charge, then we've got this problem everywhere.
3: All right, I think we
1: need to stop. I'm going to stop.